If you are able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Reading from Matthew chapter 26. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get started, I'd like to pray um, after we go through that passage that God just speak to our hearts right now that... Uh, that we can set aside those things and distractions that might hinder us from hearing what the uh, Spirit of God wants to communicate through his word. So would you join with me in prayer? God, we thank you that your word is powerful. We believe it um, to be truth. So we just stand confidently on it that even just the very reading uh, speaks into us and, and reaches those parts that we can't even discern the difference between that. It, it can rightly divide truth. So we stand on that and just ask that you encourage and speak to your church this morning in 
In the powerful name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, so, so far, just to kind of recap where we've been, we've been going through what has been kind of termed as a Lenten type of study, where this season in church history where the liturgical calendar greatly follows Lent. Now, we're not doing a true study in the strict sense of Lent, but more so, we're using it as a framework as we move on the trajectory towards Easter so we can have a season of kind of refreshment or renewal on the story of redemption, the story of the cross, the story of resurrection, so we can align with these things and say, what can we do with our hearts and lives to think more appropriately about this? Because we are people who are very busy, many different cares. We have families and concerns and works and all these things that kind of can cloud, and we miss a lot of the importance and wonderful things that God has done throughout history So it's our way of aligning with this great and one of the greatest stories ever told. But today through the passage, what what we're going to focus on is the topic of suffering and sacrifice. As I know, it's traditionally held that this is Palm Sunday, but this is what we want to view. And this can be a really difficult subject, right? Now, here's not what we're going to do. I'm not trying to, to answer the question or to even ponder the idea, why is there suffering? Because that leads to more difficult and philosophical things of the problem of evil and a lot of other things. But more so, what I want to do is take the passage that we just read and through a framework, begin to ask questions of how, how should we view suffering? Do we have a correct perspective on sacrifice? What's set before us in Scripture? Or do we need to readjust our point of view? Do we need a recalibration? Now, historically, in the point of the story, we are kicking off today the week called Holy Week or or Passion Week, where Jesus rode into Jerusalem accepting worship, people crying out. Now, this, this study takes place a few days later, this chapter that we read in context of the story. So this is kind of a precursor to Good Friday, to the actual crucifixion of our Savior. So we're going to try to branch these two ideas. Now, Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem. He rode in on a donkey. He just shared a Passover meal with his disciples. And Judas has left this meal to go betray or to sell out Jesus And now Jesus has taken his disciples out to a garden right outside the city of Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up in in verse 36. It says this. It says, And Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So we have Jesus going out to pray. Now, this was common. If you follow the story of Jesus, this wasn't something new, but something interesting is happening here. This great emotion, it says, he began to be very sorrowful, very troubled, even to the point of death. Now, these words in in the original language are saying this is a a violent emotion, this visceral reaction. Something 
profound is taking place. I'm greatly troubled. Will you pray with me? You have to be wondering what his disciples were thinking. Jesus, the, the great teacher who, who calmed the raging sea, who slept on a boat during the midst of great trials, who stood before the Sanhedrin boldly and rebuked them. This Jesus who has authority over demons, who cast them out. This unwavering man begins to show great emotion at something that has taken place. So I think we really need to key in. Has the disciples ever seen Jesus like this? And he asks them something simple. He says, will you sit here and will you watch and will you pray? In verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So after he walks on, he leaves the disciples and he prays. But key in on this prayer, what does he say? My father. Listen to the way he addresses his heavenly father. It's not as if he's praying to some cold, deistic being that doesn't care, but it has this familial aspect. My father. If there's any other way, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me, but not my will, but your will. A lot of times in prayer, Jesus does so for the aspect of us being able to see and relate to. We see an exchange. We begin to see the heart and character of God. And here we're, we're painted with a father-type image, someone who has compassion, somebody who understands. And he prays, if it is possible, let this cup pass. What are, what are we talking about? We kind of know this story, most of us, if we've ever been in church for any time, but he's speaking of what is to come. If there's any other way, can we go around this? But yet, I'm submitted to you. What would you have me do? In verse 40, it says, And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. So he goes off to pray, and he comes back. And what does he find? He left the disciples and asked, hey, watch with me. Please pray. I'm greatly stressed here. But he comes back, and they're sleeping. Be alert. Be vigilant. That's what the term watch and pray. Something is happening here. You need to wake up. And he says this to Peter, so that you won't enter in temptation, you need to be in prayer. See, previously before that, Peter was warned that he was going to betray Jesus. He confidently stood in the whole group of his peers and said, yeah, the others, they'll probably betray and they'll probably run away, but I won't. I never will. And Jesus, knowing what was to come, says, hey, this is about to go down. You need to be awake. You need to be on guard. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And that kind of idiom, we kind of get that saying. Your spirit is willing, 
internally, they absolutely meant it. They're not lying or making this up, but we can relate to that. I mean, who can? Hey, your spirit's willing, but flesh is weak. I mean, ideas of like exercise or going to the gym. I think that's a great idea. All of you should be going to the gym, right? But when it really comes down to it, eh, I don't know. Donuts over deadlifts. That's always wins. Yeah. <laughs> what other things in life are like that? Things we might want to learn. Even, even spiritually, there's a lot of things because of our physical human nature that we can relate to that. We really want to do what is right, but something keeps us from doing that. Reading your Bible. You want to have a real war with your flesh? Try to be disciplined in that. What about prayer? We know we want to, but something takes place that hinders us from doing this, and this is what Jesus is warning. He's saying, hey, I know you're willing, but you're distracted right now. Verse 42, and for the second time, he went away and prayed, my father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. He prays again, a similar prayer. If it cannot pass, this idea of this cup, right? This cup can pass from me. So the cup refers to the suffering he was about to endure. It's a metaphor. As if Jesus was handed a cup of bitterness and expected to drink it completely. See, the suffering that was set before Jesus, that he understood that he would have to walk in, was so much more than just the physical pain. He knew it was going to take place. The disciples seem kind of clueless on this, though, even though Jesus has spoken pretty plainly and clearly, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to be betrayed and they're going to offer me up. We seem to miss the point. We're not, we're not connecting. We're kind of bypassing what he's saying. But Jesus understand what was set before him. There's spiritual implications and emotionally this ran very deep. So much so, imagine this. The Son of God, who he believed to be both holy man and holy God, asked, hey, is it possible if there's any other way to redeem mankind, to, to redeem all of creation, let's take it. It's a very profound statement. Because we've heard the story where it's like, yeah, Jesus goes and he dies and he raises again and it's happy. But put yourself into this situation. If there is any other way, can we please take it? This sinless man. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, For our sake he made him, him being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. This man who never sinned, he's about ready to take on all the sins. It's called the, the doctrine of imputation, where to attribute to. Jesus never sinned. We're not saying that, that he physically became sin or became a sinner, but what it is is that all of the wrong, all the sin that's in the world is transferred to him and he's going to take the judgment for it. Because he has taken that judgment and that punishment, 
We are imputed God's righteousness. There's a trade-off that happens there. We're, we're given the exchange. God takes our wrongdoing, and we take all the rightness and the goodness from God. Somebody undeserving to bear the whole weight of all of mankind, this was set before Jesus. And what does he do? He finds the disciples sleeping. In verse 43, we see, again he came and found them sleeping. This is the second time, for their eyes were heavy. They're exhausted. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Comes back, warnings didn't work, they're sleeping. So he goes off and he prays again. This is the third time. Other gospels even mention that he was so greatly distressed that he begins to sweat drops of blood as he's laying before and and praying this. And I think it's encouraging we see Jesus modeling, hey, continue in prayer. I don't think this is a formula or maybe a book that we write saying, hey, pray three times and God will answer you. It's not what we're seeing here. But we are seeing this constant asking and this wrestling that recognizes, hey, there's a lot at stake here. There's, a lot, there's some gravity to this situation. In 45, verse 45, it says this, Then he came to the disciples and, and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise and let's be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You can sleep later on, is what he's saying. Now's the time I'm about to be betrayed. We can't stop this. This is moving forward. In 47, it says, And while he was speaking, Judas came out, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one whom I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus and at once and said, greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then he came up and laid his hands on Jesus and they seized him. And behold, one of those who was with Jesus stretched out his hand and he drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. And Jesus said to him, put your sword back in its place, for all take up the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and that he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So his disciples kind of wake up in a flurry and one of them tries to defend Jesus. And he says, stop, stop. This is meant to be so. This is something that's going to move forward from this place. There is no other way. And there's this very interesting statement. He says in 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? I mean, mean, think about this. Just moments before he's asking, hey, is there any other way? But yet, by this statement, he seems to have some authority over this situation. I could appeal. I could stop this. My father wouldn't deny me this. It's not that Jesus was left choiceless. 
I can have supernaturally, I can ask my father and he will send armies of angels to stop this should I ask. But yet, I'm going to walk into this because this is God's will. In 55, it says, And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but all this has taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him, and they fled. It is prophesied that this would happen. But we see that Jesus seemed to have a choice. He seemed to be able to reject that and say, I'm not going through with this. But yet, I will because there's something that's taking place here. Now, from this point on in the story, Jesus is on a path headed towards the cross. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be betrayed by his closest friends. He's going to be betrayed by his people. He's going to be spat upon. He's going to be whipped and ultimately killed upon a cross. And all this physical doesn't even compare to what is happening, happening on the spiritual realm. I mean, if we were honest, there have been others who have suffered physically. We can kind of highlight that in the Christian world, that yes, this was, this was horrendous, that this happened to a man, undeserving. But he's also crucified among two other people. Other people have greatly suffered in history for the name of Jesus, physically. And it was horrible, not to diminish that, but some people ask, well, that's not a big deal. But think about it. The Son of God, both somehow fully man and fully God, something takes place on the cross that we cannot fathom the depths of what that is. How did, how did we get here? We talked about Palm Sunday. Today what we traditionally celebrate the day when Jesus rides into Jerusalem with much celebrating and people cheering and laying palm branches before him saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Quite literally what they're saying is, save us, save us now. And they begin to celebrate. But three days later, where are we at? The people saying, hey, save us. We accept you. Now Jesus showing such deep emotion and then seems to pull it together and be like, nope, I'm going to drink this cup. I'm going to walk in this. And when we take the idea, remember we talked about suffering and sacrifice. How do we rightly view it? I think we might need a perspective shift on why it is there. So if we took the word sacrifice, let's kind of look at it through that. We, get, we swing from Palm Sunday to a point of Jesus headed to death on the cross to sacrifice so much. We need to kind of have a working definition of what is, what is sacrifice. So here's two. If we, we have two definitions that I think we can rightly pull from that will help us kind of get a better viewpoint of this. The first one would be this. One, sacrifice is the surrender or destruction of something valued, 
prized or desirable for the sake of something else having higher value. Or two, the loss occurred in giving something up or being sold below its value. Let me read those again, so pay close attention to this. The first definition would be the surrender or destruction of something valued, prized, or desirable for the sake of something else having higher value. Or two, the loss occurred in giving something up or being sold below its value. Now, both of these are actually correct definitions. They're not wrong, but what's the difference? They're both about value, they're both about loss, but what is the difference in these definitions that we'd accept as being true? Well, the first one emphasizes the greater value on what is gained. We're willing to give up because something of higher value can be gained. And the second focuses solely on what is lost. The actual process I'm losing here. And so our viewpoint and understanding of how we view sacrifice is greatly going to influence the way we practice, how we live. I think here, this, this example here, and when we tie that to the greater story of redemption, shows us something different from man's default way to view sacrifice. See, our proclivity and tendency is to view sacrifice as just loss, something that's to be avoided, something that we do not think positively on. Now, sometimes that can be true, don't hear me, I'm not advocating for being masochistic or any weird things where I'm going to tell you, hey, y'all need to become monastic and go live in a cave and beat yourself because it pleases Jesus. That's not at all what I'm advocating. But when we look at it, Jesus was willing to sacrifice so much out of obedience in one giant act of love because of what could be accomplished, what could be gained. Being willing to endure the physical pain. Being willing to endure what happened on the spiritual realm. Something that we can't even fathom. Because there was no other way. Is there any other way? Is there any other hope for mankind? But there was no other hope for mankind to be rescued. No other way to deal with the issue of sin. We've had all of history and the whole Bible from beginning to end is this one long connected story showing mankind trying to deal with the problems and the issues of sin in his own strength, in his own power, in his own ways, never being able to get there after the rebellion from God, from the perfect start of creation. But God has taken that upon himself to do. God's great love demonstrated for us. Now, from man's perspective, we can miss the grand way how God is working. Triumphal entry, for, triumphal entry, for example, right? Save us. Now's the time. Sit on the throne here. You're going to undo Rome. You're going to set all wrongs right. See, from man's perspective, they thought the triumphal entry was it. This is our Messiah. He's come. He's come to rule and reign. This is it. 
This is what we want. It's the easy way. But because of our wrong perspectives, we even miss out on the subtleties that are happening all along. Jesus isn't riding in on a horse like some victorious warrior. He's riding in on a donkey. All these little cues pointing to, hey, something else is going to take place. It's very subversive. Showing himself to be a humble servant, not a mighty victorious warrior at this point. See, from man's perspective, we would have just ended it right there on Palm Sunday. That would have been enough for us. Why not? He wrote in, we're willing to accept him. He can take care of this here and now. We want the quick fix in everything. How do we do something better? How do we do it faster? But God's plan took it all the way to the point of death on a cross. Even man's perspective on the cross. What, what better example to show that Jesus lost? He died. He was killed by his enemies. If we read the story, it even appears that the enemies thought that they were triumphant. Oh, Messiah's dead. Tough luck for you all. But God's plan and perspectives are different. There was no other way. And the sacrifice was made willingly because of something of value was at play. And I think Dan last week talking about the love of God greatly encapsulates that. If we went to take the whole gospel message, the whole good news, and distill it down to one simple phrase, it's that God loves you. And he demonstrated that, even in ways that don't make sense because he understood that we were stuck in our patterns and we we're stuck to the bondage of sin and the things that kept us down. He's willing to suffer greatly because of what could be gained and accomplished through that suffering. John 3.16, a verse many of us are familiar with. God so loved the world that what? He gave. It's only something. Let that sink in. Yeah, we've heard that a million times probably if you've been around the church, but that he willingly gave his son. He so loved, not just mankind, but all of creation, all of what he made, and it was good. So practically speaking, how do we engage with this? We see suffering. We understand that Jesus suffered. How do we interact with it? Some practical things. I think we see praying. I, I, I feel that the last couple teachings have kind of been a trajectory path of that idea. What do we do with anxiety? What do we do um, in the waiting? And I think Trevor did an excellent job have shown us that we can come before God and we can express. We even see that take place in this story, how Jesus went before God and kind of said, if there's any other way, deep emotions, I'd like to express that. We can wait, we can come before God and petition him. As followers of Jesus, 
the thought of being worshipers in the midst of a difficult situation or a season or through pain can be incredibly difficult. Yet, yet, we are still called to be worshipers. If you're going through a hard time, if there's heavy things in your life, you're still called to be a worshiper of God in every area. See, in Scripture, we're continually told to come before God, bring your pains, bring the raw, bring the real, wrestle before God with these things. Even in confusion and frustration, God doesn't turn that away, but he allows us to express. We can be brutally honest, but yet he understands because he has compassion, because he is a kind and loving father. We know God loves us. He hears us. He's not so far removed or so high above us that he doesn't empathize with us. So much more than just a God who created people and kind of looks down at their mess. But Hebrews chapter 4 tells us this. It says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And here it is. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that, may, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So you don't have somebody on our behalf that doesn't understand. Jesus literally took on flesh. He walked through our mess. He walked through our garbage. He suffered in a way of not just saying, hey, I understand it, but I can empathize with it because I have been there and I have walked that too, yet without sin. So it gives us the confidence that he has been able to do it perfectly in his perfect life and his perfect sacrifice is what sets us free from sin. And that's a great comfort. When we doubt, church, Change your perspective. Remember that we had a God who went to such great lengths to demonstrate it. When he broke the powers of sin and death, all the benefits that are freely offered to you by simply following him, something that you could not achieve on your own, something that needed to be done by God because there was no other way. So I think the scripture continually encourage people in hard times. If we read the, most of the New Testament, it's always dealing with people who are struggling or being persecuted. But it points us to this transcendent truth that God loves us and he's for us. He's actively working. He hasn't just left us here to figure out on his own. And it points us to his immutable, unchanging character. God is faithful. He is loving. And that's what we hold onto in these situations. For it said, the kingdom of God is an upside-down kingdom. Things won't make sense. Not the way you understand it. You have to look at it from God's perspective. Hardly anything does. Most of this story, if we really scrutinize it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So what do we do as a church to deal with suffering? How do, how, do we, how do we grapple with these things, possibly heavy things? 
The so what now? Sometimes I'm a little worried that with teaching, it's easy to just, here's your three steps, do these three things, and it checks these boxes. But when we're dealing with something as difficult as suffering or pain or sacrifice, I think that can be a little obtuse to the situation. And also, I think if you are all followers of Jesus, there's a, there's a point where you need to not be spoon-fed and told how to take every single step, but as mature believers that you'd actually just go before God and ask, God, search me, know me, how do I respond to this? And that's where we want to get as a church, that maybe you just need to sit before God and wrestle with these things. Maybe you need to sit before God and just celebrate, thank you, Jesus, that I've been saved from this. Thank you that you were willing to endure such great and horrific pain and suffering for my sake. See, I personally don't claim to understand the depths of suffering or why it even exists or or recognizing there's probably many in the room that are going through very difficult situations, very hard times. And this isn't just a cheap Christianese platitude. Oh, God's good, he's good, just, just move on. That's not, that's not helpful to it. You know, yeah, they're suffering, but God's got it. Now sing a happy, clappy song, right? Best Sunday ever, and then we'll go home. That's not very helpful to you. But sometimes to sit and embrace just the reality of what Jesus went through is a good and needful thing. Even when we look out at nature, we can see the profound work of God's redemptive story, how God rights wrongs and gone that way. Little things in nature. Even a seed, when it grows, it dies to sprout forth this beautiful life. We're talking in sermon groups. Even, even forest fires, when they come through and leave utter destruction, what comes after that? Beautiful, fresh growth. Paul, the apostle, writes many times, a person who has suffered many things physically says, hey, these are just light afflictions. These are nothing. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten, all these things. But what's coming is so much better. And we encourage ourselves with that. And like, if you're going through the midst of hard times, remind yourself in these things. And I don't even know if you can say this but in church, but there's a reality that the most beautiful flowers grow out of the biggest piles of crap. And I understand that's crass, but what is that saying? Hey, that's many of your stories. God's redemptive nature will take something and grow something beautiful out of it because that's who he is. But as we stop, I'd just like to encourage you. How, how do we press into this and respond? I think it's really important as a people that when we say, hey, God's word has authority, It speaks to his people. How do we respond to that? Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's in praise. Maybe it's taking those hard things before God. When we gather on a Sunday, you're surrounded by other believers who stand with you. We have prayer team that people who will engage with you. We're even going to take communion this morning, this act of tangible way of us celebrating and partaking in the death of and the resurrection of Jesus.
So I just kind of like to put that off on you and let the Holy Spirit do the work. You know, as we move and we're in the mindset of like, hey, Easter's coming, but we still have Good Friday. We still have the whole story. Let the weight and reality of what Jesus did and what he accomplished, may that lift your gaze. May that help you be recalibrate the purpose of maybe what you're going through. Won't give you all the answers, but we have confidence that we have somebody who understands. And I, and I want to leave you with this. In Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3, it says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which so close, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do not grow weary. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted." For the joy set before Jesus, because of what could be gained, he endured much sacrifice, much suffering, because he loves you. Be encouraged with that, church, and and consider. He endured this stuff, such hostility that you won't grow weary. Times of hardship, recalibrate yourself, remember, rehearse the gospel, teach it to yourself, you need that. Now as we stop, I encourage you, how do you interact with this? What is your response? What is your right response? We're going to take communion, and uh, Tavis is going to lead us through that. So I encourage you, take the time. We have space. We're not going long. We're going to take communion, and we're going to worship. If there's something that the Holy Spirit's prompting you to respond to, do it. morning everybody and especially great morning to Jordana it's awesome to see you back with us again Gene you're not too shabby either but your wife is amazing so so awesome that you're here with us so my name's Tavis and I am on the elder team here and as you can see and Josh mentioned it is communion Sunday so we have uh, the elements in the back and the front And here at Anthem, the table is open to anyone who professes Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's it. And so if that is you, uh, in just a minute, uh, you'll be able to come forward or go to the back. All of the, uh, everything is in one. So you're just going to grab one stack, and it has gluten-free, all of them are gluten-free. And then uh, when when you take it, feel free, you can go to the carpet, back to your seats, you can stand however, however you want to do that. I know that uh, as you go to different churches, sometimes you're doing communion and you're looking around like, Is, when are we doing this? Do it on your own time. When the, when the, we're not going to do that part together, but we do it collectively as a church once a month. And those of you parents, we believe that that is between you and the kids. That's a family decision, and so we just leave it right there uh, in terms of when the kids will do it. And as Josh said, um, the ultimate sacrifice that, that Jesus did... and 
even when Dan talked last week, the ultimate love, I think that when we look at, at that time when he spent with the disciples and he said, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you, and then this next part gets glossed over, I think, where he says, do this in remembrance of me. He doesn't say, remember the laws. He doesn't say, remember the commandments. He doesn't say, remember the rules. He says, remember me. Not that those things aren't important, but in that moment, we have a, a risen Savior who wants us to remember him, who wants a relationship with us, who's after our heart. And I think when we've done communion so many times as believers, for those of us who have, it's just easy to, to, to read those words and not really think about that. And so as we enter into communion and, and, and you're preparing your heart, I just encourage you to, to think about that. As he says, remember me, the life he lived, the examples that he gave us. Um, so would you pray with me, please? Lord, we just thank you so much for this week that we are in where we get to just celebrate your amazing life and what you did for us. You are the only risen Savior. Lord, and I pray as we go out this week as a congregation that you are preparing the hearts of people that we will come into contact with, that we'll have the boldness to invite people next week to come and hear your good news. People who maybe have never had an experience with you that, uh, that we would be bold enough to to have eyes and ears as we go out this week, not just this week, every week, but especially this week, that, that we would see those opportunities, that we would step forward, and you know, and we don't have to have the words, but that you'll give them to us. Uh, we pray that uh, from Good Friday to next Sunday, that lives will be changed through your resurrection power, Lord. We give all this to you in your name. Amen. Feel free to come as you're led. You don't have to rush the tables, but uh, when you feel the time is right, please come forward.